Hey, mid-wretched friends. It's Tommy here. I just wanted to provide a quick disclaimer before this episode starts that we did have a little, well, I did. I shouldn't say we had a little bit of an audio issue. So for the first, like, eight or so minutes, my audio doesn't sound quite as sharp as Mix does. It does correct itself at about that mark. So please hang with us and stick with it for this really important and really interesting and really... Um, troubling (laughs) case. Um, The other disclaimer is just a little bit of a trigger warning that this case will discuss uh, sexual assault and rape, um, particularly in a college campus setting. So uh, please take care of yourselves as you listen. All right. Thanks, friends. Here comes the show. Wretched friends, I am Mick and I have an octopus on my head. Yes, she does. Hi, friends. I am Tommy and I don't have an octopus on my head, but I do have a powerful head of curls. I love that's like an octopus. It kind of is, actually. (laughs) (laughs) We're just gonna we're just going with it. We're going with it. That's what I have. That's what I'm bringing to this situation. Good, 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 good. But you say that we have a, a very intense episode today. Yeah, we do. It's um, it's kind of a trip. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of a trip. It, well, it's an emotional trip, I should say. They're all emotional trips. I know. And I feel like we say that every time, like, oh, buckle up, you guys. It's emotional. As though we're not doing, like, a true crime show where everything is just hard, right? As if I didn't just talk about the brutal murder of a three-year-old last week. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, today is definitely um, going to be just I, I'm, I'm finding it very fascinating. So uh, I hope that you will too. And I hope that our listeners will too. All right. Well, I'm excited. That's why I had to put this like filter octopus on my head because I needed some joy in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm going to take it away. So. <laughs> well, take it away. Okay. Well, here we go. I'm going to have us start on May 26, 2021, uh, with Sherry and Corey Foltz, two parents who lost their son, Stone, to a fatal hazing incident. They stand before the Ohio legislature, tearfully pleading for the passage of Collins Law for the Ohio Senate Workforce and Higher Education Committee. So Collins Law had been introduced to the state Senate on March 10, 2021, as SB 126, Collins Law, the Ohio Anti-Hazing Act. Ohio already had some anti-hazing law on the books, but Mm -hmm. Collins Law would uh, significantly widen it to an extent that Sherry Fultz was quoted to say in this hearing, we believe Stone would be alive today if Senate Bill 126 had become law. In fact, the bill was introduced to the state Senate on March 10th, 2021, and they had just lost their son on March 7th three days before the bill's introduction. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So on July 6th of that year, Governor Mike DeWine signed Collins Law into effect. And so we are going to be talking about Colin Wyant, the bill's namesake, who died in November 2018. And it's because of the intensive lobbying by his parents and later the parents of Stone Fultz, 
who died uh, last year, 2021. We can hope because of this that no more of Ohio students will fall victim to the ruthless and brutal hazing that took the lives of these two really promising and wonderful young men. So really, like what I'm going to tell here is two pretty different stories in some ways, two very different universities on two opposite ends of the state, um, but two stories with the same tragic outcome. So we're going to ask what happened to Colin Wyant and Stone Fultz and who is accountable. All right. It makes me just wonder, especially like hearing about these, like why (sighs) universities in Ohio are intense for some weird reason. Mm Mm-hmm. And like you said, they already have anti-hazing laws. It just makes me curious, like, what it is that makes it so necessary, that makes hazing so prominent in Ohio. So uh, let's kind of start with a little bit of activating prior knowledge, Ooh. as we say in the classroom setting. What? How would you define hazing as you know it? Well, as you know, I will always refer back to old episodes of SVU. <laughs> that is uh, so very accurate. There is a very excellent hazing episode in Law and Order SVU. Mm-hmm. It involves a wooden paddle. That's mm-hmm. all I'm gonna say. Mm-hmm. But in general, when I think of hazing, I think of fraternities, especially sometimes sororities, um, athletic clubs, any kind of like a really insular group, any kind of really like exclusive group, and kind mm-hmm. of how they to varying degrees make their members earn a position through varying levels of experiences. And what comes to mind is always the very degrading violence, mostly really hyper-masculinized or kind of, Mm. I'm losing words here because it's been a long day, um, stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think that's a really kind of apt definition. So, uh, really, we have we have two stories to talk about, two different young guys I want to talk about. I'm going to start off with Colin Wyant, and then we'll we'll talk about Stonefolds as well. So, Colin Wyant was born on March 27th, 2000. Uh, his parents' names are Wade and Kathleen Wyant. They have a pretty big family. Uh, Colin was one of five. So in a family that big, you can imagine it was pretty dynamic and active family. And Colin fit right into that kind of busy, active family vibe. Mm -hmm. He was athletic and charming and honestly, a pretty wholesome young kid, basically. His best friend in the whole world was his brother, Aiden. And prior to, you know, going to university, he took really great pride in like the community that he found at his high school, which was St. Charles Preparatory in Bexley, Ohio, which is just outside of Columbus. It's like a suburb of Columbus. Yeah. Which is where he, he didn't grow up in Bexley, but in another suburb of Columbus. So he's a suburban Columbus kid. There's a lot of suburbs out there. Yes, there are. I didn't realize just how much of like a clustered up area it is out there. Oh my God. So, you know, growing up in a more like suburban urban environment, Colin made the decision as high school came to its close to attend Ohio University. We need to make the distinction between Ohio University and the Ohio State University. Is that what you guys call it? I don't even know. 
Yes, they are officially the Ohio State University. Okay. So Ohio University is not that. Okay. So OSU is what you think of as like Big Ten, like Columbus, huge, massive state university. Ohio University is similarly named, but very different. It's actually Ohio's oldest university. It's extremely historic. It was founded in 1804. Damn. Way to go, Ohio. Yeah, really old. I would describe it just looking at the numbers, the enrollment numbers and things like that as what I would say is like a medium to large sized research university. It's not it's not like a Big Ten sprawling school, but it's also not like three buildings around a lake, right? Oh, no, it's got a decent reputation. Like plenty of people I went to high school with like went to Ohio University and it was considered like an honor. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's it's a a good good school. school. It's well known. It's a good school. It's a solid school to get into. I think it's one of those schools that like admission to it definitely says something about your credentials as a high school student. You know what I mean? Um, so Ohio University is nestled in the beautiful hills of Athens, Ohio. That area is gorgeous. Uh, so we're kind of back in that like Chillicothe, Hocking Hills sort of region. Just lovely. Uh, southern part of the state. Ohio University has a lot to offer its students. It has a world-class faculty. Its student body also boasts one of the largest volumes of Fulbright scholars in the entire country, um, which I thought I was very impressed by that. Yeah. Um, They're just a Fulbright factory over there. (laughs) And uh, they also have a very vibrant and active Greek system. There are tons and tons of sororities and fraternities at Ohio University. Yeah, there are. It's huge there. So if you look, you know, up and down state and college streets in Athens, Ohio, you'll find frat house after sorority house after frat house. I mean, I was just Google mapsing and like my taking my little guy along street view. And it was just like house <laughs> after house after house after house. And that was something that Colin was very, very interested in. He had planned to rush a fraternity no matter what, no matter where he went to college. Both of his parents were members of the Greek system, and they just had wonderful experiences. I don't know exactly how his parents met, but I know they went to the same university. So I'm going to infer that probably through kind of connections between his the dad's fraternity and the mom's sorority. But they just had a lot of really wonderful things to say about it. Like I said, enjoyed like lifelong friendships because of their affiliations with the Greek community. They had professional connections because of those affiliations. So, you know, and those things carried on well into their adult lives on top of just like the fond memories and camaraderie and all that good stuff during their college years. Um, So this was definitely part of Colin's plan. Go to college, join a fraternity. Now, Ohio University has lots and lots and lots of options for fraternities, But for reasons I'm not totally sure of, like why he decided on this particular fraternity or frat, as the young people call it, he (laughs) (laughs) sometime early in that first semester, he texted his girlfriend, uh, who was his kind of his girlfriend through high school, Brinley Zieg is her name, that he planned to rush basically the toughest frat at Ohio University, Sigma Pi. So uh, the exact conversation that they had on Thursday, September 13th was, uh, Colin says, I'm going to rush the hardest frat. They have the hardest hazing, but I'm going to do it. Brinley says, Oh God, good luck. A little while after that, about an hour and 15 or an hour and a half later, she says, I just got really nervous. So can you text me when you're back at your dorm? 
He says, I'm at my friend's dorm right now. He showed me around Sig Pi. She asks, is that who you want to rush for? And he says, yes. So uh, what do you know about just kind of starting with fraternities and sororities, like rushing, pledging, that sort of stuff? Like basically next to nothing other than what I've seen on TV and our incredibly minimal experience in college. Perfect. Okay. So you could tell me anything and I would probably believe it. Okay. Because again, like it's, you say like, oh, he wants to rush the place with the craziest, like hardest rush. Yeah. So. And you're like, what does that mean? So uh, Again, I can fill in the blanks from TV, but. Yeah. And you know, audience, we were not exactly the biggest joiners <laughs> when we were at university. So <laughs> although I would say our freshman year, we did spend a decent amount of time at frat houses. And I think we just kind of stopped after that. The bloom fell off the rose, you know? Yeah. I personally never once considered joining a sorority. I do not think that I was or would be now considered to be sorority material. So, um, but I can understand why other people want to, because we all have Mm -hmm. this just inherent desire to belong. And for certain people, that is going to mean trying to join a fraternity or a sorority. So, how that process works basically, and I'll just kind of Cliff's notes it, is that you can express the desire to rush a fraternity or a sorority, which means that you're basically kind of, for lack of a better word, like auditioning to join it. Um, so you might rush, you know, you rush the fraternity of your choice. And during that process, you're doing um, events and things like that. They are meeting you, you're meeting them. And basically, the the organization is going to decide whether or not you will become a pledge. So the rush is kind mm-hmm. of the initial phase of proving yourself, so to speak. Okay. And then the pledging stage is probably the stage that we're the most familiar with as being when um, kind of hazing starts to really, really happen with more aggression. I'm starting to remember this from Scream Queens. There you go. So, so you know, but there is some hazing during rush, but... The other thing to remember, too, is that these organizations are sponsored by universities. So, yes, that's a really, really key thing to understand. These are not independent organizations. These are organizations with a particular affiliation uh, to their like overall organization. Right. There's chapters of each fraternity sorority all over all over the place. But uh, it's a university sanctioned organization as well. So. So if I remember recall understand rush is kind of like the fraternity putting themselves out there to you and they're like hey this is us this is what we're all about come hang out with us Mm -hmm. and then there's a little bit of like kind of interaction teasing and parties and whatnot yeah it's it's kind of both it's like the it's the getting to know you getting to like you stage of everything Mm -hmm. basically so uh but there will be rush events where prospective uh new members are you know, basically coming out to to prove themselves, to be kind of like a walking resume of why they should be admitted as pledges. And then during the pledge process, you're basically kind of taking that next level of proving yourself to be, you know, in, inducted into the brotherhood. See, like my inherent competitiveness is attracted to this, mm-hmm. but my inherent asociality hates it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just like I... It's something like the particular organizations are not something that I would do because I do not do well with authority and um, (laughs) 
Greek organizations really depend on a very particular hierarchy. Um, yes. And I do not do well in that. But I do just understand and really empathize with, especially being a young person, trying to find affiliation with something, right? Whether that's like yeah. our weirdo Scrabble group or joining a Greek organization, right? Like we all have that need. It just looks different for different people. Yeah, it is. It's like a built in kind of friendship group and family away from home, which is why I think that you see them more involved in these kind of like bigger schools where it's more kind of kids who went away from home as opposed to those who kind of stayed more local. And I know that a lot of people will say it's like, you know, business connections and career connections and things like that. I have no idea how valid that is. I don't know. It's, it is extremely valid, actually. So yeah. uh, it's yeah. both. It's the experience that you have, you know, coming to college and during that, you know, four years you're in university. But it is also all this stuff afterward as well. There are these like very legitimate professional connections that that you'll make. I mean, it's basically like kickstarting your network, right? It's, you know, it's the same reason that like I will have an immediate foot in the door as a Notre Dame alumna with a hiring manager that also went to Notre Dame, right? Okay, yeah. So it's the same kind of thing. So yeah, so that's our kind of snapshot into Greek life. So the decision to rush Sigma Pi did come with some of the typical things that we might think of as like not particularly harmful, quote unquote, hazing, like having to clean up the frat house uh, or going on cigarette or food runs for brothers But in the name of brotherhood, for a young man like Colin, who went through an all-boys Catholic preparatory school, a big, close-knit family, brotherhood, I think, was just an idea that he was really enamored with, and he was going to rush, and he was going to do everything that was asked of him in that process. Was he kind of inherently competitive? Because you say, like, oh, I want to do the toughest one. Mm -hmm. I want to do, like, the one where I'm going to have to put up with the most to prove myself. Yeah. So Colin was known to have, like, very um, intensive workouts. And he, Mm -hmm. in his freshman year, or I think in the summer before he went to college, he kind of had this, like, mission to transform his body. He was an athlete. He definitely had that kind of inherent sense of competition. Yeah, definitely. Got it. Got it. I felt that. Me too. Yeah. And that's, that's a big part of his character (laughs) and a big part of (laughs) my empathy for him too. Cause I, I, I can very much see myself in that. Um, Oh, hundred (laughs) percent. So, you know, and I think that's exactly what I was about to get to. Like, I don't know precisely why I rushed the hardest frat, but I do think that there was a personal challenge kind of involved in it. Mm -hmm. And Sigma Pi did have a pretty high social reputation on campus so at large universities with lots and lots and lots of options as far as fraternities and sororities, there are levels of prestige. You'll hear them discussed as like tiers. I'm in a tier one frat. I'm in a tier two frat. And you want to be in a tier one frat, basically. It's this kind of like internal, you know, who gets the best pledges, mm-hmm. who gets the the most accomplished, the most attractive, et cetera. Uh, I'm sure that also comes down to like, where is the money coming from? Yes, it does. I will say for a really, really excellent and incisive and interesting look into particularly sororities, I have spent the last couple of days listening to the Snapped podcast. And Lucy, who's the host of the show, does an amazing job kind of talking about her experience going through a top tier sorority at a huge university and kind of the fallout that happens when she decides to disaffiliate or uh, leave the sorority. It's a really, really good show. 
adding it now. Yeah, it's a quick listen too. So I really, really recommend it. So, you know, Colin was immediately pretty popular with Sigma Pi. So whatever he saw in them, he, he they also really liked him. And so after Rush was over and he was officially, you know, chosen to pledge for the, the fraternity, he was also elected as the pledge class president for that year's new recruits. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he was he was just a really well liked person. So, but then you know he was called to start cleaning houses and bars. There were a couple of bars in the area where several of the brothers worked after hours, usually as like doormen, occasionally as bartenders. And he was called to clean up the bars after hours and the house, often very very late nights or during his classes. Oh. Yeah, and so because of that, his grades would start to fall pretty quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And that is kind of part of the story of, like, the semester that he had that ended up leading to to his death. Um, but one of the really prominent, important things that happened for Colin was that he was actually invited by the fraternity's president, Elijah Wahib, to a weekend in Tennessee, which was a kind of a big deal. It was a big deal to be invited mm-hmm. as a pledge to, like, an annual getaway, basically. Um, And it was, you know, it was an honor. And I'm sure that Colin hoped that it would be that all of the the missing classes and the cleaning and the chores he was doing would be worth it um, because of that trip. It is, however, on that trip that things take a pretty dark turn. And this is also where it's really important to talk about the unofficial and official pacts of silence that happen within these Greek organizations. It is actually, mm-hmm. like, incredibly hard to find stories of hazings and other rituals um, that go on within these organizations until something happens that requires outside attention yeah. or when there are stakes for the broader community. And I think all too often, basically what that's code for is something really awful has to happen for the curtains to get lifted. Something illegal. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's really hard to find out the inside scoop on the Greek life, basically, because they they keep their rituals and their processes and their rules really close to the chest. Uh, And there is a a code of silence. You don't talk about what happens. Mm -hmm. But Colin did break the code of silence to some degree to both Brinley, his girlfriend, and Aiden, his brother, his little brother. And what he had to say about the weekend in Tennessee was extremely troubling. During this weekend, Colin was beaten pretty severely with both belts and bare hands. Jesus. Yeah, leaving welts and bruises all over his skin. He was bruised and battered and also participating in very heavy drinking and the use of mm-hmm. cocaine and Adderall at parties and recreationally. Um, mm-hmm. And this was having a really a big impact on him. And it was really only like mid-fall at this point. Like we're talking about like September. Right. That's early fall, I should say. Wow. So, you know, it's already starting. But by the end of the semester, he knew he was going to be accepted as a brother of Sigma Pi. Um, And once he became a brother, the hazing would be behind him. Yeah. Yeah. But the words that he used to describe what he was going through uh, to his brother, Aiden, were things like abuse, torture, and I'm scared. So he's not totally in denial about what's happening. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think it's not denial. It's more like, let me just grit my teeth and get through this. Exactly. Of like, once I'm accepted, this will be over. Mm-hmm. It, it's not forever. I only have to deal with this for a few months. Yeah. And then I'll have like my future written. 
Exactly. Know? Exactly. And I'll have the next, you know, three and a half years to mm-hmm. enjoy the spoils of being a member, right? You know, there there's other documentation out there, particularly uh, in a lawsuit filed by Colin's family against Sigma Pi that alleges that Colin was also forced to beat others in the pledge process, was pelted with eggs on a couple of occasions, was intentionally deprived of sleep, was forced to take drugs and alcohol, or at least heavily coerced. He had been at one point locked in a room with other pledges where they were each given a gallon of alcohol and one hour to drink it in order to be allowed to come out. Holy fuck. Yeah. Isn't that insane? That is just like prescribed alcohol fucking. Poisoning. It's alcohol poisoning. Poisoning. There Mm -hmm. you go. Poisoning is the word I was trying to find. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really, really was. He was also stripped down, covered in hot sauce, and forced to play tackle football at one point. And, you know, the big thing was that he just had to drink until he passed out again and again. There was this extreme mm-hmm. pressure to be drinking huge volumes and fairly constantly. Mm. Now, I don't know exactly what Colin was referring to, but when I just kind of looked around for any kind of social media presence that might still be, you know, have a, a shadow on the Internet, I did find that his last tweet was on September 28th. He just says, you ever wish you had a time machine? And maybe he was talking about something else. But I have to wonder at this point, because this would be after the Tennessee weekend, if he was wishing that he had never decided to pursue Sigma Pi. Yeah. Can't help but wonder. Yeah. And I just found it really like when I found it, it just kind of gave me goosebumps. I thought it was really poignant. Mm hmm. Um, It was also somewhere in this span of time, I don't know the exact date, though, um, that other parts of his life started to kind of crumble as I think some in some ways directly and in some ways indirectly as a result of uh, his involvement with Sigma Pi. We know at this point that he and Brinley break up. Uh, It is insinuated in a couple of sources that Brinley broke up with him because this lifestyle was just kind of not compatible with her needs i would say i mean it's 100 percent possible and valid yeah yeah so his life was just kind of falling apart he you know he was no longer just taking drugs and drinking at these sig pie parties but also doing so you know by himself to cope with the trauma surrounding his hazing and his breakup and his grades are suffering mm-hmm. and then on homecoming weekend There's another major incident that I think was probably the inciting factor in what would kind of become his kind of final spiral, I would say. What? Homecoming? That's usually like October, early November. It's October 20th. That is... Okay. That is so fast. Okay. Yeah. So uh, I do want to set the scene here a little bit as well. So like I said... Sororities and fraternities are officially sanctioned by universities, and there are official houses for these organizations. A lot of the bigger ones, and the inference I'm making is a lot of the um, edgier organizations that are more involved in unsavory activities, tend to have a higher incidence of also having unofficial off-campus residences as well. Sigma Pi's unofficial house was located at 45 Mill Street, 
in Athens and people would just kind of refer to it as 45 mil. I'm going to a 45 mil party, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was infamous for its intense and raucous parties that, you know, really you couldn't get away with having the kind of parties they were having at the on-campus official housing for the fraternity. Mm-hmm. You had to have it at 45 mil, right, to get away with yeah, it, basically. Yeah. You have to have some kind of, like, facade for the campus. Yeah, and I remember this from our own college days, too, that um, – like the Phi Caps and KDR and what's the other one? Um, SIGUP. Well, SIGUP was the only one that had an unofficial house. I remember that. I just want to set that scene. So 45 mil is a little bit off campus, still walking distance. It's Athens. It's not that big. Um, so Ohio University celebrated its 2018 homecoming on October 20th of that year. And as you can imagine, there was a massive after party at 45 mil. Of course, yeah. And at this party, Colin met a young woman who woke up the next day alone, confused, surrounded by her own discarded clothing and two used condoms. Yikes. Yeah. Police records would show that she had texted Colin Wyatt asking how they had met. These text message records were obtained by the Columbus Dispatch, who did a beautiful long-form podcast about Colin Wyatt called Broken Pledge. I also recommend that. Adding it again. Mm-hmm. It's it's an amazing, they did such an amazing job. I just love the Columbus Dispatch. I think they are the best newspaper in the Midwest. They're pretty solid. They're pretty solid. Mm-hmm. What is that? What is it called? Broken Pledge. Okay. I just binged all of Maintenance Phase. Oh my so. gosh. Do you know they're doing a Goop episode next week? I cannot wait for the Goop episode. So um, she asks in the first text message, how did I meet you? Mm-hmm. He says, 45 mil party. Did you walk me home? Yeah. Did you have sex with me? I am pretty sure. So on or about October 24, the woman reported this as a rape. She told police that she had drank two cups of jungle juice at the house party. Now, uh, for those unfamiliar with jungle juice, typically, typically jungle juice is basically like, let's pour all of our leftover random booze into a giant vat and then also, like, fill it in with some, like, fruit juice like fruit punch, or fruit like punch. Hawaiian punch. Yeah, Kool-Aid or whatever. It is abominable, but it's a, I mean. It's a campus staple. It's a campus staple. And, you know, we have enjoyed some jungle juice in our day. Maybe enjoyed is too strong of a word. But, you know. But, but to say that this is coming from an area of, like, literally no judgment because mm-hmm. it is a near universal midwest college experience it absolutely is however i will say that i don't think that the jungle juice at our university's frat parties was ever spiked with xanax Ooh, which was rumored to be a very common additive at 45 mil parties fuck that's a bad combo xanax and alcohol that is literally you are creating a cocktail for people to pass out completely incapacitating right and that's exactly what she would report that she After her second cup, she didn't remember anything else about her night. Mm -hmm. So obviously, when you are that inebriated, consent is not a thing that happens, right? Well, sounds like she didn't consent to be that inebriated. Exactly. So, you know, during the investigation, Colin told police that it wasn't a consensual encounter, uh, but he would admit that they were both drunk. Okay. I don't know if he knew that the jungle juice was likely spiked with Xanax, I mean, he knew that he was wasted. He knew that she was wasted. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, given the weight of the allegation and the investigation that, you know, kicked off right after that, Sigma Pi had to officially discharge Khan as a pledge. Ooh. Yes. Okay. However, in in informal circles, the brothers were still had his back. He was welcomed at parties. He was um, still, you know, very much a part of the social fold within the fraternity. But the chapter basically could not afford to be officially affiliated with someone who was a part of such an investigation. Even though they created the situation Mm. for it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll talk a lot about the situations that these people create. So I will say that I don't think there was like a great social cost for Colin for not being in the fraternity. But there certainly was that like official cost right like he could not be an official pledge anymore because of of what what happened and the investigation surrounding it so you know he did maintain a friendly relationship with brinley and he would tell aiden as well that after this was happening he just was really really struggling he wasn't eating he wasn't sleeping he wasn't really taking care of himself anymore and all of this kind of leads us to the night of november 12th of that year, 2018. So like so many nights, there was a party at 45 mil and Sigpi brother, Joshua Andrzak came to party. The, there were a lot of drugs at this house. And as I read the charges later, it'll be obvious to you just how, how, how much these parties (laughs) were like very, very drug fueled, particularly. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad, but Andrew Zach also brought with him whippets. Are you familiar with whippets? I have treated whippet addiction. Really? Uh-huh. Almost always comes with pretty significant brain damage. Interesting. I did not realize that people were particularly addicted to whippets. But it it, it doesn't happen as often as like alcohol, mm. cocaine, or other things, but oh, oh yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Whippets, not something to fuck with. They are not. They are not. So for those uh, unfamiliar with whippets, these are the little steel chargers filled with nitrous oxide that you find inside of basically a canister of whipped cream. So nitrous oxide is the the laughing gas you get at the dentist, but it has also, you know, risen in prominence as a party drug because its effects are immediate. They are Mm -hmm. um, short lasting, but pretty intense. And they wear off very quickly. So typically, well, often, I would say, uh, users kind of have that quick high and then it wears off like relatively quickly. It's also very easy to find. So it's not hard to get your hands on whippets. So I didn't realize that you've treated people that had a whippet addiction. So, you know, I'm sure you know them that like it's not typically associated with a lot of like immediate negative effects, but... When there are Except negative seizures, effects, heart failure, falling off balconies. I was just about to say, when there are negative effects, they're <laughs> really, really bad. <laughs> and those, those are they, right? So <sighs> uh, perpetually use is linked with all those things you just talked about, right? And oxygen deprivation, obviously. Um, so you've got kind of like two different like layers to it, right? Like there's the the risk factors that just happen with being like incapacitated to that degree right like falling off of balconies and not having muscle control there's lots of stories about people like wandering into traffic and getting hit by cars and things like that Um, but then there's also the physiological 
stuff like seizures and heart failure um, and prolonged oxygen deprivation, which can lead to brain damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So guys, don't fuck with whippets. Whippets bad. Whippets bad. So <laughs> um, it is not clear to me or to anybody how many hits Colin took off of the whippets that night, but we do know that at one point that night he took a hit and immediately fell backwards, losing consciousness. Mm-hmm. He gasped for breath and the color drained from his face. Corbin Gustafson, another frat brother, called uh, Elijah Wahib, the fraternity president, asking Wahib if he should call 911. Mm-hmm. So right away you've got, I'm not going to call 911. I'm going to call somebody else first and find out if I should call 911. And I want to just like really, really stay on this point for a second. We're talking about someone immediately losing consciousness, gasping for breath. Some sources described like other very disturbing noises that Colin was making right in this moment. The color draining from his face, extremities turning blue. And in that Mm -hmm. moment, the first call is the fraternity president, not 911. While Corbin was on the phone with first with Elijah Wahib and then with 911, uh, Joshua Anderzak administered CPR. But it was, okay. well, it was too late. Yeah. Colin was gone. It's not totally clear um, from the autopsy whether or not um, had the 911 call happened immediately that Colin would be alive. I, from what I understand about the um, the physiological process that happened, it would not have been possible to save him. He um, he was gone well before that call was made. But okay. it is still extremely important that we know that even we know that in retrospect, Corbin and Joshua did not know that in the moment. And they still made that choice to call Elijah Wahid first. I mean, these are a bunch of, like, what, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. They are. Like, that are probably intoxicated themselves, as intoxicated as hell, but. And so, you know, I want to exercise the appropriate degree of empathy for, I guess, those those young men. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, what the first thing that Elijah Wahib does Um, after Colin is taken away and, you know, um, officially declared dead, his family is notified. While that's happening, Elijah Wahib officially inducts every single pledge as an active member, thus invoking the code of silence. Uh, Yeah, you're not going to get a lot of empathy from me for that one because that is entirely to cover your tracks. Exactly. Exactly. Literally no other, not a single other reason to do that. Exactly. So in the investigation that followed, basically all these guys are being told like that we have to spin the story that insinuates that Colin arrived at the party already drunk. He was on drugs. He was out of control. Mm -hmm. The autopsy showed that none of this was true. His blood alcohol content was a modest 0.06. Le- oh. Yeah, legal limit being 
Well, he wasn't 21, so technically the legal would have been is, like, zero. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, well, there, there's a level you're allowed to have because of cough syrup and other shit. But anyway, that is neither. <laughs> yeah, like definitely not the point. <laughs> not the point. Thank you, though. Bad timing, Nick. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, a point oh six is like, I mean, I've never um, had my BAC measured, but I would imagine that a point oh six is like, I had a beard, maybe, you know? For a dude, I'm imagining he worked out, so he was relatively bigger, maybe two to three beers, mm-hmm. but not significantly intoxicated. No. I have played with these during my training. Oh, so. really? Yeah. So you're, I mean, it's it's yeah. below the legal <laughs> limit, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. His official cause of death at autopsy was asphyxiation from the inhalation of nitrous oxide. Mm-hmm. But like I said, Elijah Wahib instructed his brothers at the very least to keep their mouths shut. And at the most, to outright lie about hazing activities that semester. Of course he did. Colin was to be strictly painted as self-destructive and Sigma Pi's role in his downward spiral incidental at best. You do. Pretty much. Pretty much. This is like... Because I like to think that when you lose a friend... Mm-hmm. Somebody that you actually genuinely cared about. I'm not to say that these guys didn't genuinely care about them, but they clearly had other motives. That when you lose a friend, you do want people to think good things about them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really interesting point. I think one of the things that I've really spent some time thinking about and delving into is just the how much these organizations rely on their image and their reputation. And there's like a, Mm -hmm. you're one of us. So you have to display this list of sterling qualities. Um, And anything that does not fall on that list of sterling qualities, we need to separate from because, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to remember that these organizations, they're cash cows. Members pay dues. They pay rent. They pay for random shit. Like, um, I saw one list where it was like you paid a badge fee of like $500 to get like a pin that you put on your blazer. Um, Which makes them another level of elitist. Exactly. Exactly. So there's that elitism that is part of the deal. There's the the money. And then there's like the kind of implication, like the social implications outside of your particular chapter of undergraduates, right? Because you're a part of a network of other, you know, Sigma Pi chapters that all answer to like big Sigma Pi, like the big overall organization. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a being like a, a member in good standing is crucial to the operation and continuation of these organizations. And anybody mm-hmm. that is not in good standing is going to be pretty much ostracized pretty quickly or distanced, I would say. So, you know, while that is kind of happening, like behind the scenes at the house, kind of with the brothers, the Wyatt family is also taking pretty immediate action. While the criminal investigations are going on, they actually sued the fraternity the following February. Um, And I think that played a pretty big factor in the university officially expelling Sigma Pi from its campus that spring. Mm hmm. So Sigma Pi is no longer, you know, sanctioned by OU, and it has not been since. Obviously, it's been officially expelled. Um, 
This was not long ago. You said 2018. 18. 18. Yeah. So nine young men associated with Sigma Pi and the 45 mil party that night would be indicted in charges related to Colin's death and the party it occurred at. I'm going to go through those charges and those people. OU student Dominic Fagiola, 21 at the time, pled guilty to two felony charges of drug possession and misdemeanor hazing and failure to comply with underage drinking laws. He was given probation and no jail time. Colin McLaughlin, 20, pled guilty to two charges of possession of LSD, a felony, probation, no jail time. So again, like this is going to start to kind of show you the the level and intensity of drug use that was going on in this house as well. Mm-hmm. Zachary Herskovitz, 22, pled guilty to felony permission of drug abuse and a misdemeanor hazing charge, probation, no jail time. Saxon Angel Perez, 22, permission of drug abuse, trafficking in cocaine, and hazing. James Dylan Wanky, 25, Received two counts of involuntary manslaughter, two counts of trafficking in harmful intoxicants, as in distributing the nitrous oxide. His connection to everything was that he was not a member of SIGAP, but kind of affiliated with it. He was an OU alum and, and pre- previous member, so I guess a lifetime member, one would say. Um, but he sold Andrzejak the Whippets at the store that he worked at called the Silver Serpent. Stephen Lewis, 27, trafficking in harmful intoxicants, improperly dispensing of, and distributing nitrous oxide. So he worked with uh, James Wanky. So those are kind of the initial charges for that group of people. I, I think I categorize that a little bit separately from the ones that are going to follow. The heavier charges start with Joshua Andrzejak, 20, the one who brought the whippets to the party. So he was charged with involuntary manslaughter permission of drug abuse, hazing, and two counts of trafficking in harmful intoxicants. So that involuntary manslaughter charge is a pretty big, it's a pretty big charge. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty big charge. So it's basically like, um, you know, somebody died because of you. You didn't mean to, but you yeah, killed him. You didn't plan this or intend this, but you played a crucial role mm-hmm. in their death. Yes. And it, I mean, I think there's no question that that's a fair charge. But what do you think? Yeah, 100%. I think that's a fair charge. Had it not been for those actions, he would not have died that night. Exactly. So Andrew Zach would plead down to uh, permitting drug abuse, two counts of trafficking, cocaine trafficking, hazing, and negligent homicide. So negligent homicide in Ohio is a first-degree misdemeanor. Andrzejczak pled down uh, partially in exchange for testimony. So playing down earned him 70 days in jail, 70 as in 7-0, for the misdemeanors and an abeyance pending his completion of the Athens County Empowerment Program, which is a program they call ACE for short, facilitated by the Office mm-hmm. of the County Prosecutor. That's basically like seminars and workshops and, and job training. And, and it's a rehabilitation program, basically. Yeah. So negligent homicide here is more like that you didn't do something to cause their death, but you also didn't do something to keep them alive. Yes, yes. And I think that 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 kind of comes down to, in many ways, like the timing of that 911 call, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you you didn't intervene when you should have, Mm -hmm. right? And again, whether or not it would have made a difference physiologically doesn't really matter because they would not have known that, right? 
Yeah. And you have to assume that calling is better than not calling. Right. Corbin Gustafson, I mentioned him as well. Uh, he was 22 at the time. He was also took on one charge of reckless homicide. He was our 911 caller, but you have to remember that, like I said, he was one that waited to call and he mm-hmm. called Elijah Wahid first. Yeah. So he pled down to complicity to permitting drug abuse, which was a first degree misdemeanor. And his sentence was also held in abeyance pending completion of the ACE program. Elijah Wahib, I think, is really interesting. So he was 22. His list of charges, I think, is very appropriate. But you tell me what you think. Tampering with evidence, obstruction of justice, permitting drug abuse, hazing, misdemeanor assault, and failure to comply with underage drinking laws. What do you think about that list of charges? I think I wish it was higher, but it also sounds like he wasn't there that night, which means that they couldn't have really charged much more. That's when it sounds like they were kind of digging for charges because they wanted him to be held responsible for something. It's for me, it's the tampering with evidence that gets me. Oh, that's right. Because he was the one that exactly that kind of uh, indoctrinated all of them. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Don't talk about it. Colin was a bad guy. This was his fault. Right. I waved my magic wand and now you can't say anything. Mm-hmm. Same with obstruction of justice. Right. He mm-hmm. interfered with witnesses, essentially. So he... Good. Yeah. Good. He was the last to plea out. His was the most recent um, plea bargain that went through. He pled guilty to two counts of obstruction of justice, which is a fifth degree felony, and two counts of hazing. So he was ordered 31 days in jail on the hazing charges and completion of the ACE program for the other charges. So I want to talk about just kind of a quick quote that uh, the county prosecutor, Keller J. Blackburn, had to say um, kind of at the conclusion of Elijah Wahib's sentencing. He said, the fraternity participated in cyclical hazing. Each class was hazed as a part of being initiated into the fraternity, and then they awaited the opportunity to inflict the same or worse hazing two years later to new pledges. The culture of silence and presumed consent with hazing must be stopped and legislative actions are necessary. I have worked to change hazing laws with the Wyatt family and the representatives Greenspan, Edwards, and Boggs, and I am looking forward to the General Assembly passing Collins Law hopefully this year. So this statement came at the conclusion of what he was sentencing, like I said, which was tied up on August 26th of 2020. I'm really taken by the... I got really stuck at the, like, uh, presumed consent me to hate. Me too. Tell me about that. Well, I think it's an interesting trick of words mm-hmm. that any fraternity, anybody committing the hazing can say, oh, well, they consented to this, you know, because they were here and they stayed, they consented to it, no matter how much they were suffering, no matter how much they might have said, please stop, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. The implication is if they stay, then they're consenting. It's the you know what you're getting yourself into mentality, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think it's interesting because, like, Colin did tell uh, Brinley that, like, he knew he was rushing the toughest frat. But mm-hmm. I think that there there has to be, like, a necessary understanding that, like, what we think of, like, what how we conceptualize something in our brain is very different from the physical experience and the emotional experience of actually going through it, right? Like, 
You hear about yeah. like, oh, I'm going to get pelted with eggs. And you think, I mean, whatever. But that's not the lived experience of then being probably like, you know, being yelled at at the same time and and the, the welts and you don't know how hard they're hitting you or for how long or what they're saying while they're doing it, right? Well, because of this doctrine of silence, nobody actually knows what they're getting into. So you can say like, oh, I'm rushing the toughest fraternity. I'll have to get yelled at and I'll drink until I throw up and this, that and the other. They don't necessarily no, no, you're actually going to get beaten. Mm -hmm. No, you're actually going to get made sick. You're going to have to make a million sacrifices. And it's this idea of like, oh, that's not real. People don't really do that. That's just in the movies. Mm -hmm. But in Colin's case, it was very, very real. Yeah. And I'm sure if you would have told him his senior year of high school, like, that's not real. That's not actually going to happen. I'm just going to have fun. I'm going to make some friends. Yeah. That and whatever. And like very truthfully, that was his parents' experience, right? So that was like yeah. what he was, his conception of Greek life in large part came from his parents and they had those good experiences without the intensive hazing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's also something in there just about, and it's a bit of a play on words, so you'll have to forgive me, but I have an MFA and once in a while it pops out. I think the way that we think about hazing is hazy because... <laughs> You've been waiting for that one all day, haven't you? I mean, it's been a long day. So, <laughs> But my point is this, right? Like when... There is not a hard and fast, super concrete definition for hazing. You cannot say... Activity A equals hazing. That is not really how we conceive of that mm-hmm. definition, right? Um, and it's intentional, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's not totally related. Well, it's tangentially related. But if you listen to the Snapped podcast, um, what the host will talk about is an incident where, and this is a, a bit trigger warning because I'm going to talk about rape briefly, um, that she was raped. But it took her months to call it that because – she wasn't sure if there was kind of like a presumed consent with what happened, if it was kind of like how it went down was kind of incidental. And there was these very like blurred, what could be perceived as kind of blurred lines going on. And I think that the parallel to hazing is not uh, far-fetched that there, the line between like, like fun initiatory activities and something that causes a real mental and physical harm I think that line is wide. I think it's blurry and I think it's individual in a lot of ways. Right. For example, I've had conversations with two men in my life that both uh, were frat guys, different frats, different universities. One of them was in Ohio and they both had one of the same hazing experiences, which was being dropped off in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night and told to find like walk back to the car. Basically. That sounds like a very Ohio thing. Yeah. Yeah. One Michigan, one Ohio. And, you know, they knew that the car was nearby. They didn't have a sense that they were in any real danger, right? That would be, I think, for some people, really harmless hazing, right? But if you are somebody who is terrified of the dark, terrified of the woods, perhaps you have a previous traumatic experience with being lost in the woods or something like that, then the experience goes from like that kind of harmless initiatory activity into an act of hazing, right? Because mm-hmm. of like the impact on the the recipient of the action. Yeah. And that's where I think it gets to be really troubling. 
I also spent some time talking to my husband about this because he has experience with hazing more in the athletic context because he was an athlete. And what I thought was really interesting about what he said was like, and I think we texted about it, like just being kind of caught in between, like, I know this is wrong. Like after kind of being the recipient and kind of getting through that stage of things, you know, what's going on is wrong. You don't want to participate in it, but you're not necessarily going to speak against it either. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, the authorities in the picture, either explicitly condoning it or turning the other way. Right. So in the case of these fraternities, I think turning the other way. Right. I I don't think that you can say the university had no idea. I don't think you can say that SIGAP's parent organization had no idea. Right. Yeah, I don't believe that they had no idea. They might be able to say they didn't know the extent of it. They might be able able to say, oh, this is boys being boys and this is college. But yeah, I don't know. Exactly. Um, And and I think sometimes in the athletic context, like what my husband was saying was that like his coach knew about it, was kind of part of it Mm -hmm. in the sense that he would like kind of perpetuate the same kind of language, which was like intensely homophobic and really harmful in that way. And so like that, like gave like the kids permission, like implicit permission from the adult to engage in that activity. Right. Yep. Once you as the adult start using that language and start taking part in it, then you're giving permission for other people too. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, back to, back to Colin, and then we're going to kind of start talking about stone folds. So these charges fall, you know, come through and these plea bargains happen. They kind of happen like in pretty rapid succession. Collins Law was drafted almost immediately um, after his death and was lobbied for heavily by the Wyant family. But unfortunately, another Ohio fraternity brother would die in a hazing incident before the bill could be enshrined into law, which kind of forced a really tragic connection between two families but I think that tragic connection in some ways did lead to the bill finally being pushed through and enshrined. Okay. So we're going to talk about Stone Foltz. Stone Foltz was born on November 21, 2000. So very close in age to Colin, actually. His parents, like I said earlier, were Corn and Sherry Foltz. He grew up in Westerville, Ohio, which is like basically the geographic center of Ohio. <laughs> It is. Yeah. It, I have been to Westerville so many fucking times. Really? Yes. They always had a big ass band competition that I had to go to every goddamn year of my childhood. Okay. Resentment. <laughs> Just saying it was cold and I was like seven and I hated it. It also anyway, sounds like it ahead. was probably a pretty like boring place to visit. Like probably a really nice place to grow up, but a pretty boring place to visit <laughs> from what I could tell. I don't know. All I ever saw was their high school 100,000 times. So uh, Stone, after he graduated from his high school, enrolled in Bowling Bowling Green State University, BGSU. We we like Bowling Green on this show. We have experience with Bowling Green. I told you that I sometimes wished I had gone to Bowling Green. They, They gave me a better financial offer. When I was deciding on graduate school and I didn't go because Notre Dame and I had a terrible experience in Notre Dame and I spent many an hour wondering, would this have happened at BGSU? <laughs> so um, I thought about going there for undergrad. I'm so glad you didn't. 
Bowling Green is really truly in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I honestly chose not to go there because it was too close to family. Mm, yeah, your grandma's, what, like 20 minutes from there? Yeah, yeah. So, um, like Make Implied, Bowling Green is pretty much in the middle of nowhere, although the middle of nowhere is really only 15 miles south of Toledo, which is a different, a decent-sized city. But... It feels so much Yeah, better. like the border between Toledo and farmland is like very harsh, right? Oh, it is It is like the T- Toledo city line, Sylvania, and then straight farmland. It totally is. And that's where BGSU sits. Like that farmland starts, boom, BGSU. Mm-hmm. So um, unlike OU, Bowling Green is not exactly known for its like super strong or voluminous Greek life culture. But it, it is home to several fraternities and sororities. Right now, there are 16 on campus. Those numbers do shift because in many universities that have large Greek populations, certain disciplinary actions or investigations for different activities will lead to like suspensions or probations or... Like at OU. Yeah. yeah. So that number fluctuates. Mm. Right now, there are 16. So Stone was a lot like Colin in some ways, an accomplished athlete with just the sweetest smile you've ever seen in your life. His picture is just mm-hmm. like, they just got right to my heart, honestly. Just looks like this sweetest kid. He graduated high school in 2019. <laughs> he enrolled at BGSU to pursue a degree in business. He, If you look at like his high school lacrosse photos, he just has this like huge, delightful smile. And I think you can really feel his personality like through those pictures. And his personality was described as like shy, but funny. Like once he warmed up to you, he was shy at first. But when he warmed up to you, he was like really delightful and dynamic, passionate Mm -hmm. and warm. People described being blessed to know him, um, which I thought was really touching, honestly. So he obviously was going to college during pandemic time. So during a Zoom class, due to COVID-19, he um, locked eyes over webcam with fellow student Maddie Borgia. <laughs> and I thought their little love story was really sweet. They became very quickly I'm glad that things don't change virtually. Right? I'm glad that things don't change just because it's virtual. No, like they were like, they hit it off on the Zoom, they met up, and it was like kind of a done deal from then on. They were pretty inseparable after that. Maddie is, um, she seems like a really sweet person. So she rushed a sorority and in turn Stone decided to rush as well a fraternity called Phi Kappa Theta, which is known colloquially as Pike. So that's how I will refer to it. Pike has and had at the time a big reputation in the immortal words of Taylor Swift, um, at BGSU and in other chapters at other universities. And I'm going to talk about some of the history there. So, but, you know, Pike had, even though like Greek life at BGSU was pretty small, Pike had probably arguably the biggest social presence, certainly known to be like kind of the top tier fraternity, the big men on campus, which, you know, Maddie in retrospect said that she thought that probably did attract Stone to some degree. Yeah. Oh, I mean... That would attract a lot of people. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of the history of Pike a little bit and some of the allegations against Pike, other chapters of Pike kind of nationally. So one chapter of Pike, the Delta Beta chapter, 
had been reported for hazing in December 2018 uh, when somebody made an anonymous tip that their roommate who was pledging at Pike was like purposefully deprived of sleep and that um, people were forced Mm -hmm. to go into a big hole in the ground in their underwear and fight each other. (laughs) Yeah. Another chapter, and I think this is one of the things that happens all too often, had several members post a picture on Instagram with themselves dressed in some pretty racist costuming for Halloween. They were dressed as stereotypical cholos. The picture um, that they posted was captioned, your culture is my costume, hashtag Cholo gang. If you remember, there was kind of a pretty major campaign that year and in a couple of years before that and a couple of years after as well. The um, my culture is not your costume campaign. Mm-hmm. So this was obviously like a direct comment on that campaign. It was a direct fuck you. Yes, it was. Um, so, you know, an apology was issued and yada yada, but it still happened. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the other thing that I think happens in a lot of these like Greek organizations is that there is an explicit and implicit culture of racism, sexism, homophobia, um, all mm-hmm. of these like incredibly negative social forces that go on and that are kind of like aided and abetted by the organization. Yeah. In 2019, another university received a report about concerning activities related to a big little reveal party, which will be, we're going to come back to this because this is, this is where Stone died as well. Um, So I'm going to come back to what that means, but it was known to be a thing that happened prior to it happening to Stone. There's also a pretty long history of, of hazing deaths associated with Pike as well. In 1976, Samuel Mark Click was killed because he was hit by a train during a hazing event, which was like a scavenger hunt. In 2002, Mm -hmm. Albert Santos at the University of Nevada, Reno, drowned during a hazing ritual. Um, He and several other pledges were forced to swim in their underwear, but Santos could not swim and he drowned. Yeah. In 2012 at Northern Illinois University, uh, David Bogenberger died of cardiac arrhythmia as a result of alcohol poisoning. They were forced to drink huge amounts of alcohol in a short time frame. We kind of saw an example of that with Colin's case as well. Everybody involved, 18 pledges, drank to unconsciousness, but uh, David Bogenberger never woke up. In 2015, the University of South Carolina chapter of Pike was suspended when a member was found dead at an unofficial house near campus. The death was termed suspicious. There have also been numerous allegations of sexual assault involving Pike members, including sexual batteries, trigger warning for some of these next things I'll talk about, allegations, obviously, for sexual assaults, for gang rapes, for be part of a hazing ritual being sexually assaulting female students, like kind of a, um, a jump-in ritual. Or a sexual assault at one organization or one chapter of Pike at Tulane University, um, where members were basically instructed to assault young women. I hate this so fucking much. Me too. Pike is trash, absolute trash, and I I do not say that with any like reservation whatsoever. Um, 
at Florida International University, the fraternity was suspended in 2013 after members were trading nude pictures of women taken without their consent during sexual activities with various fraternity brothers. Mm. Yeah. So, and that doesn't even, like, get me started on the list of other, like, harmful, racist, and sexist activities that were, like, posted on social media. There was also one situation at the University of Southern Mississippi where some Pike brothers, a hazing incident involved them having to steal a flamingo from a zoo and the flamingo in the struggle to defend its mate was killed. And then the next day the surviving flamingo was left at a bicycle path and then died as well. I'm fucking sorry. What? Yeah. Let's see at the university of Mississippi in 2021, (sighs) seven members of Pike were arrested for spraying bleach down the throat of a pledge. Um, who ended up having a severe erosive esophagitis as a result yeah. of it. Yeah, that's what will happen. Mm-hmm. What is fucking wrong with these people? Exactly. Who comes up with these ideas? That's my other question is like, good Lord. Like, this is really unforgivable, awful things that somebody has to think to do, right? Like, you have to I think like- to do that. Yeah, because some of those, I, as much as I hate to say it, like, they're almost like cliches, like sexual assault and frat. We know that happens. It's fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. I think what's getting me is, like, the stupid, sadistic creativity. Yeah, yeah. I think so, too. I think that really, you know what it really reminded me of? in many ways was um oh gosh what was that documentary about the haunted houses on netflix um about the extreme haunted houses <gasps> oh i've seen this documentary haunters the art of the scare so yeah, 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 yeah this movie follows like um people that build and run like um independent haunted houses basically but it and it it starts off as being kind of like a delightful movie about like people that are really invested in like horror and stuff like that. Uh, It ends up devolving into basically a case study of this particular man who builds this incredibly extreme haunted house. It's free to go through. All you have to do is donate a bag of dog food for a local shelter and basically consent to anything as extreme as waterboarding ingesting vomit or feces being covered in bugs being aggressively touched punched sensory deprivation um, these like really really horrible horrible things that you have to consent to to be able to go through this haunted house and he films it all and the look on this man's face as he's watching people go through this is like the stuff of nightmares but One thing that always gets me about this documentary is that people come out of the haunted house and they say things to the effect of, I had to go through this and now I want to make other people go through it as well. Yeah. And that's what this reminds me of in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, I really like, I kept thinking about it when looking at these stories because like, I feel like that's, it can't be dissimilar to the cycle of hazing, which I think in for probably the majority of people is a lot like that, like kind of Colin's attitude of like, just grit my teeth and get through it. 
Uh, maybe on the other side, I'll kind of like half-assedly participate, but I'm not going to be like the, you know, the conspirator of the entire thing. But then you've probably got this subset of other people that are like, how can I increase how fucked up this is? Like mm-hmm. perpetually, how can I come up with the, the next extreme thing? And um, and I did it, so you should have to do it. And Or I did it, so you should I have to got be worse. Through. You can get through mm-hmm. it, yeah. And so when we think about the word initiation... I think that's a big part of it, too. Like, there's this idea of having to prove yourself, prove how far you're willing to go to be a part of these organizations, right? So I have I have no sympathy whatsoever for Pike. I think that they have this long history of just awful things that happen at their chapters. Um, there is a very short-lived pike podcast from like their kind of overhead guys that talk about like oh here's our policies here's what our handbook says we don't have alcohol at our frats we don't believe in hazing (laughs) Um, we're just like uplifting young men and like future leaders and stuff like that and then you read these situations and it's like either the disconnect the gulf between the parent organization like Big Pike and what's going on in these houses is extraordinarily wide without the overhead knowledge of it or there is knowledge of it, but we're going to kind of pretend we have this like facade of of uplifting young people, right? This is too widespread and too fucking weird Mm -hmm. for me to believe that the higher-ups aren't aware of it. Yeah, and there are these frats that have these really extreme reputations, and Pike has been one of them for a very long time. It has an extremely Mm -hmm. extreme reputation, and it has for a long time. So I think, like, Sigma Pi, Collins frat didn't have that. It, It was the most intense frat at OU, but to my knowledge, from my research, it didn't have like a national reputation for extremity like Pike does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to get back to Stone now. So in his second semester of sophomore year, so he was a little bit older, he would rush Pike. And just like Sigma Pi, Pike had their official on-campus housing, but unofficial residence that they called the Bando. The Bando was located, I think, very ironically, footsteps from the Wood County Courthouse, where many would later face criminal charges. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Stone did not have the kind of chain of events that Colin had. He had a much more, quote unquote, typical rush experience, you know, the parties and the getting to know yous and things like that. He and his pledge class were accepted as pledges on February 7th. So they sig Pi Collins frat did their process in this in the fall semester um, and Pike did theirs in the spring semester so they were accepted as a pledge class on February 7th and given a new pledge handbook and that basically was like a handbook of like kind of your code of conduct the expectations of you as a pledge and like the rituals and the stuff you had to go to the like required events and things like that Um, what you would be expected to wear at said events, like that kind of thing. It also included that uh, on March 4th, there would be what they call the big little event, the big little party. And that was going to be a a big one. And if they should inform their professors that they probably would not be in class the next day. So at the big little party is traditionally when new members learn who their big is. So 
part of Greek life is that like when you become a a member, you are a little and you get a big as in a mentor. Mm-hmm. And there's just kind of like mentality that there's like a family tree to it, right? So you have like your big and then their big is like your G big, your your grand big, and then up and up and up and up and up it goes. So you're in this kind of like long line of, of bigs, big and littles. Very cute in theory. It is very cute in theory. And I could see it being like a a really cool kind of like bonding thing. Like I could see it being really fun to like get together all of the you know, the guys in your line and, you know, from like an 80 year old guy to a new, you know, college (laughs) kid, basically. So uh, I mentioned really briefly that there was another incident at another university related to a big little event. So the big little event to my kind of by the end of my research, I was able to pretty much conclude that this event was fairly standardized um, amongst Pike chapters, or at least a few of them. So you know, at this event, you learn who your big is, and there is a family bottle of alcohol that is like, <laughs> yeah, that is like the alcohol that like your line drinks, basically. So at the party, there's an expectation that you will be drinking the alcohol that your big and, and your G big and your GG big, right, also drink. So on February 4th, 2021, Stone and the other new members of his pledge class arrived at the Bando at 8.30 p.m. They were told to dress up in formal attire. When they got to the party, or got to the house, I should say, uh, they were told to take off their ties and use them as blindfolds. They were led in a single file line to the basement of the Bando. While they were being led, they were being yelled and pushed, um, yelled at and pushed. And there was also, like, incredibly loud, disorienting music, like, blasting over mm-hmm. a speaker system. So it's obviously, like, a very intense sensory experience. Yeah. yeah. The Bando basement is lined with garbage cans, which tells us that there's an expectation that this is going to get messy. When they get to the basement, the blindfolds are removed, and you get to see who your big is. And your big is, like I said, your mentor in the in the organization. Mm-hmm. As a part of the big little ritual, like I said, uh, you would be given your family drink, your family alcohol. Um, most people were presented with a fifth or a handle, um, somewhere between 750 mLs and 1,000 mLs. And everything that all the examples I saw were pretty high ABV drinks. Mm-hmm. So the new members were gifted the bottle. There was no explicit policy stating that you had to drink the whole thing. But some people would testify later that it was heavily implied or pressurized indirectly that you were supposed to drink the whole thing. Um, mm-hmm. Some of the young men would describe like their big taking a few sips to like help them out basically, so they wouldn't have to actually drink the whole thing or, like, taking a shot or two out of it. Others described being allowed to, like, pour some on the floor or just to not have to finish the bottle. But there were others that said, no, the expectation, even though it's not, like, written down, was that you drink the whole bottle. Stone was given a bottle of Evan Williams whiskey, and uh, his bottle was 1,000 mLs. Mm -hmm. Stone finished his bottle in about 18 minutes. 
What? In 18 minutes, Stone consumed 1,000 milliliters of alcohol. A bottle of that size is the equivalent of about 16 shots. So if you can imagine taking Mm -hmm. 16 shots in somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 30 minutes. Different eyewitnesses would say different things. The um, the lowest end was 18 minutes. A couple of other guys said, eh, 20, 25. A couple others said about a half an hour. I don't think that that 12-minute difference makes a big difference in the extreme amount of alcohol that he drank in that amount of time. No, because Evan Williams is, what, like 50% ABV? It's a very high ABV alcohol, yeah. Yeah. There is a very short video that was introduced as evidence later on that shows Stone drinking from his bottle. And, you know, you don't want to make like a ton of assumptions about what you're seeing in that kind of a thing. But just looking at it, the look in his eyes of like desperate determination is how I would describe the look on his face. Like, I am going to do this. Um, mm-hmm. So... His big's name was Jacob Crin. So Jacob Crin gives him that bottle and Stone, like I said, finishes it somewhere between 18 and 30 minutes. Witnesses would say that Stone pretty much immediately threw up, as did most of the other pledges, um, and he couldn't walk. So Jacob Crin and two other people uh, load him into a car and drive him home. They then leave him alone on his couch after an indeterminate amount of time. The party started at 8.30. The event started pretty much right away. So if he drank it in, let's say, 30 minutes after getting there at 8.30, I think we could probably say that he was deposited back at his apartment sometime around between 9.30. They stayed around for a little while. Maybe they left about 10 o'clock. At 10.30... Yeah, that's my that's my sense of the timeline. That's a really rough timeline, but yeah, it tracks. It is. I mean, we know that at about 1030, Stone is alone in the apartment when his roommate Wade McKenzie comes home. Wade comes home and Stone is not looking well. He is unconscious on the couch. Uh, Wade panics and calls Maddie, Stone's girlfriend. Maddie also called her mom to come, and she did. So the three are in the apartment. Um, when they arrived there, when Wade got there, Stone was not conscious, but he was breathing. Soon after Wade and Maddie and Maddie's mom got there, Stone would stop breathing and his face turned blue. Maddie called 911 at about 11.23 p.m. Her 911 call is really, really hard to listen to. In that call, she kind of keeps her composure at first. She says, you know, there's somebody here who's unconscious. I know he's had a lot of alcohol. And that's really what they thought happened was like, he drank too much. Mm -hmm. He needs to sleep it off. But he's breathing really slowly. And there's a discomfort there. He's not waking up. They're like trying to wake him up. He's not moving. You know, he's not grunting or anything. And like I said, in, in the call, Maddie, the 911 dispatcher is like, is he breathing? And Maddie thinks that he is. And the dispatcher says, can you see his chest rising and falling? And this is where Maddie really just kind of freaks out, understandably. She's not really able to stay on the phone because she's like so kind of frantic and panicked at this point. So Wade takes over the call and he knows CPR. He was a Boy Scout. So he was able to administer CPR to Stone. Paramedics got there at 1125. It only took them two minutes. 
Stone was taken to the Wood County Hospital um, and then had to be life-flighted to Prometica in Toledo. Stone's blood alcohol content when he arrived at Prometica was a 0.394. Jesus Christ. Take that in for a minute. A 0.394. So his blood is nearly 4% straight alcohol. Like, that is literally a beer. Like, a beer is 4% alcohol. Yeah, that's the scale up, right? So... I like there were not a lot of stories that I could find where somebody had a higher recorded blood alcohol content than that. I saw some like point fours in some other like extreme cases and things like that. But um, this is a tremendous amount of alcohol in his blood. Um, One doctor who I saw um, a talk with online said that for most people about a point two can very mm-hmm. well be a fatal dose. Mm-hmm. So arguably Stone has in his body almost twice a fatal amount of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And the doctors try. And they are able to get him kind of hooked up to enough life support devices so that his body could be prepared for organ donation before his family decides to, to let him go so that his organs can be donated. So the party happens on March 4th. Um, Stone dies on March 7th after his body is prepared for organ donation, like I said. Mm -hmm. Soon after, on April 29th, the Wood County prosecutor charges eight men in connection to Stone Fultz's death. Mm -hmm. In court, a few young men that were fellow pledges, like I said before, Testify to this idea of atmospheric pressure, which I feel like is a really apt description of what was going on there from what I could tell. So uh, what they described was like, okay, like I said before, there was not an official rule that you have to drink your entire handle. But they would say like there was this like unofficial atmospheric pressure that you had to drink it and you had to drink Mm -hmm. it fast. And to me, like... That's also kind of where, like, the hazing definition kind of comes back into play a little bit. Part of hazing, like, you know, we've got this idea of, like, presumed consent. We've got this idea of both implicit and explicit pressures. And this is one of those situations, I think, too, where it's like, you don't have to say it directly for everyone to know it's true. Exactly. And I feel like everyone has been in a situation like that. Maybe not it's re- maybe it's not related to drinking, but something. The pressure or the unspoken expectation is palpable. Exactly. And, you know, another would testify that it wasn't that atmospheric that they were being like egged on and like keep, you know, go 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 like that kind of rhetoric. So, you know, there's there's some eyewitness testimony that says that. So at the least, it's the atmospheric pressure. And to my mind, the atmospheric mm-hmm. pressure is enough to be valid, right? Well, and that's what we know about peer pressure is that it's rarely like the overt peer pressure that really affects people. It's the kind of ambient. Exactly, yeah. So like I did with Colin's case, I just kind of want to go through who was charged with what. So Benjamin Boyer is 21, is charged with hazing and failure to comply with underage alcohol laws. 
Aaron Lahane, charged with tampering with evidence, hazing, obstructing official business, and failure to comply with underage alcohol laws. You saw a lot of the same stuff as in Colin's case, as in pact of silence, as in, mm-hmm. you know, we we don't know what happened, why it happened. It's just like, no one told him he had to drink that. Like, that kind of speech starts to kind of float around, right? Yep, nobody forced him. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to. It's not like it was written in the handbook, right? Jared Pritzel, 19, third-degree felony involuntary manslaughter, hazing, and failure to comply with underage alcohol laws. Neil Sweeney, 21, third-degree felony involuntary manslaughter, hazing, obstructing official business, and failure to comply with underage alcohol laws. Canyon Caldwell, 21, Third-degree felony involuntary manslaughter, tampering with evidence, obstructing justice, hazing, failure to comply with underage alcohol laws, and obstructing official business. Troy Henriksen, 23. Third-degree felony involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, tampering with evidence, hazing, and failure to comply with underage alcohol laws. He would go on to be found not guilty of the involuntary manslaughter uh, or the reckless homicide or tampering with evidence, but was found guilty of hazing and failure to comply. Dalen Dunson was the chapter president. He was 20 years old at the time. He is charged with third-degree felony involuntary manslaughter, tampering with evidence, obstruction of justice, hazing, obstructing official business, and failure to comply with underage alcohol laws. Jacob Crin, Stone's Big, age 20. First-degree involuntary manslaughter, third-degree involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, felonious assault, hazing, obstructing official business, and failure to comply with alcohol laws. Uh, He would go on to be found not guilty of the first-degree involuntary manslaughter, the third-degree involuntary manslaughter, reckless homicide, and felonious assault, but was found guilty of hazing, obstruction, and failure to comply with underage alcohol laws, all of which are misdemeanors. Great. Lots of misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. Most of the other young men took on plea deals. Neil Sweeney reached a plea deal. All of his charges were dropped aside from uh, tampering with evidence. Aaron Lahane pled guilty to 11 of his 17 charges, the most important ones being tampering with evidence and hazing. Jared Pritzel pled guilty to many charges. Reckless homicide had been changed to involuntary manslaughter, which is a felony in the third degree. Some of this stuff is still happening, but mm-hmm. Crin, Jacob Crin, was sentenced to 42 days in jail and 100 hours of community service. His other time was suspended and he was ordered to have, I thought this was really interesting, no contact whatsoever with the Folds family. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder where that came from. I wonder too. I don't know. And I couldn't find why, I don't... but I, I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, I'm just curious because that doesn't usually come out of nowhere. No. I wonder if there was maybe some, because uh, I saw one interview between Stone's parents and a, a news reporter that... Um, they asked, did anyone's family reach out to you? Like any family of the the frat brothers. And they said one family did. And they were very nice about it. But, and I, I kind of wondered, like, even that, even if it was like a pleasant interaction, it could still be seen as interfering with the, the court process, basically. Oh, yeah. yeah. If Crin violates any of his sentencing conditions, the judge has the right to impose additional jail time, which is the case for all of these plea deals and even the the jury indictments that in any time that these 
sentences are not complied with that the judge will come back and be like, yeah, well, you're going to go to jail then. Everybody wanted, well, not everybody, I guess, but prosecutors were heavily insistent that Jacob Crin received jail time because they needed it to be a deterrent for other hazing cases in the future. Mm-hmm. Crin's lawyers were quoted to call it a mean-spirited prosecution, which I thought was kind of interesting. That's a prosecution. Yeah, like, what do you think their job is? So, Friend, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. At um, Crin's sentencing, Sherry Stone's mother gave an impact statement, and I wanted to read part of what she said. We will never know why Mr. Crin never helped Stone the night of March 4th, 2021 with assisting him in drinking the family bottle or why he never poured any of the alcohol out, similar to what the other bigs did for their littles that night. Instead, we know Mr. Crin cheered Stone on and coerced him into drinking the entire bottle. He was proud of Stone and used him for the spotlight. Which is a, Hmm. yeah, a pretty heavy insinuation that, like, Crin could take pride in Stone finishing that bottle and that was like a point of pride for him well but that also fits like with the frat culture right mm-hmm. but look at my little he did his he drank his whole thing in 18 minutes exactly blah, blah, blah. look at how deserving and hardcore my little is right troy henriksen was one of the older um brothers there he was 23 he um also served was sentenced jail time 42 days in jail and then 28 days of house arrest a jury found him guilty of eight counts of misdemeanor hazing and seven of failure to comply with underage drinking laws. So his is another sentence where if he violates any of his sentencing conditions, um, he will have jail time added to the 42 days he already served. So far, the other young men have received probations, fines, things like that. So, you know, I kind of want to like conclude a little bit I, I want your thoughts, but because mm-hmm. I, I feel like I've just been like, I've been like talking like a freight train because I have like a lot of just feelings about these cases. I mean, it's a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. But it's also not like I, it's a lot of the same stuff going on that we also are fully aware that it's going on all across the country. Exactly. Exactly. And there have been other like really, really awful hazing deaths. In the past mm-hmm. few years, a lot of them happening, and they do happen, obviously, at, like, very consistent times of year because they're consistent when with, um, you know, that the transition from rushing to pledging, right? And there's a very specific mm-hmm. amount of time that that happens. So it's really jarring to see, like, you know, within a one-month span, like, three young guys dying as a result of hazing mm-hmm. during the pledge process. Yeah, um, But I think that kind of adds to the impact of it. When this happens, it's like it's open season on these guys. People will die as a result of these activities. Like, this is not, this is not stuff that doesn't happen, right? I just did a really quick, like, wiki search. And it said 40 deaths between 2007 and 2017. Yeah. From hazing. I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. And in the past, uh, like, few years since then, there have been... Quite a few. One of the really awful ones I just read about was the case uh, Timothy Piazza, I believe in Pennsylvania. He was, you know, forced to drink at his frat house and then basically fell down so many times without assistance from the frat brothers 
that he um, his brain was so swollen that half of his skull had to be removed to like release the swelling that he had like um, a huge degree of internal bleeding and one of the brothers had the nerve to say yeah he looked fucking dead because he was like this is I fucking hate this people yeah like this is what's going on and like I want to like I don't know like the the problem is that like obviously not everybody involved in these organizations does these things blah 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 right but these organizations very much are complicit in creating a culture where these things happen. Mm-hmm. Right? If you've heard these things from any other type of organization, it would be completely disgusting, right? You would be aghast if you found out that the PTO at my daughter's preschool involved a <laughs> hazing ritual that would be like fatal to like one mom a year, you know? Like, that would be absolutely appalling. Why are we not culturally appalled by this when it's happening in these, like, arguably endemic proportions across college campuses? Because it's just boys being boys. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And everybody has to go through it just like it is what it is, you know? Like, we all do it. We all survive it. So they can, too. It, again, it's that idea of like, well, I got, I made it through and I was fine and I'm better for it. Yeah, exactly. If there's a light here, it's that the death of Stonefold's kind of reignited interest in Collins Law, which had kind of stalled the state house. I think mostly for just pandemic reasons. Um, but because the two families were kind of able to kind of join forces to reignite interest in it. Collins Law was passed. Uh, It officially took effect in October of 2021. It was actually like passed and approved in the early summer, but there's a 90 day uh, wait between passage and going into effect. Mm -hmm. And the timing was very deliberate. They hoped that by um, pushing it through in the early summer, that it would go into effect in time for fall rush and pledge season. Yeah. So I I, I thought that was... Um, kind of an important deliberation to make. So like I said, Ohio already had, and all if not most states do have some kind of hazing law on their books. Mm -hmm. Um, Collins Law widened the provisions of Ohio hazing law. It expands the definition of hazing, um, and the hazing includes coercing others to drink or use drugs. It increases hazing to being a secondary misdemeanor at the very least, it expands the list of officials required to report hazing. So it basically kind of turns people into mandatory reporters. Fucking good. Yes. It also widens the scope of who can be punished for participating in hazing activities. So even if you were not there, if, if you're like a, you know, a, a fraternity president, for example, even if you were not there, mm-hmm. that your permission of hazing is up for legal grabs for prosecution requires that anyone aware of hazing reports it to authorities uh, and that failure to do so can be up to a first degree misdemeanor. It also required the Ohio Department of Higher Education to implement a specific anti-hazing education plan to um, roll out to universities. And it required staff at colleges and universities to undergo training on hazing. You know, like I said, like they're 
there was the hope that the timing of the passage of, of the law and it's um, going into effect would prevent any further incidents at fall of our season kind of following its passage. And the one thing we can say that is that, you know, as of now, just September 7th, 2022, um, there have not been any other hazing deaths at any of Ohio's 126 colleges and universities since the passage of Collins law. So we can, I think, be grateful for that, if nothing else. Wow. It passed in that spring 2021. Yeah. Wow. It hasn't had a lot of time, but I'm trying to have a silver lining here because I'm having a lot of difficulty. I was going to say, it's, it's, it's hardly even hazing season. Yeah. Yeah. And really, we're like, I guess this would be like the second normal academic year since mm-hmm. COVID. So it's not like there's been a lot of time, but... Eh, last year was hardly normal. Right, yeah. But I'm going to retain the hope that, you know, this being a more serious and intense set of legislation can have more preventive action than the previous bill, which was basically like, hazing, don't do it. Ohio doesn't like it. <laughs> like, this is much more specific and actionable. I mean, that's generally Ohio's strategy towards things we don't like. It's- Hey, that's true. I don't like that. Yeah, please stop it. <laughs> COVID. Yeah. We don't like that. Yeah, right? So fascism. We don't like that. <laughs> doesn't like. It. Doesn't like it. It's very uncomfortable. <laughs> very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's my story, friends. I hate fraternities now. Yeah, I wanted to kind of maintain like what I thought of initially as like a necessary degree of empathy or a necessary amount of grace. But I do just have this intense skepticism that like, I don't think I can buy into the idea that um, participation in these organizations is not complicity in these activities, right? And, and I say this, like, excluding, like, other things that are called fraternities that are true philanthropic organizations or true... Like, we had service fraternities yeah, exactly. at school that really were just organizations that... Did wonderful We're going to go do stuff. stuff. Like, yeah. 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 And also, like, but... um, fraternities and sororities that, like, specifically serve people of color and, like, other marginalized groups that, you know, give them a space to, to have, like, a an organization that they can kind of belong to and and take pride in and all that sort of stuff. But it's stories like this that I'm like, where is the outcry from the fraternities themselves? Exactly. Yeah. Because it sounds to me like they're all like, oh, we're not like that. That's not like us. Mm -hmm. But I don't see them condemning their own chapters. Yeah, they all have a... Because I think of these, like, legal pressures, they... You'll find if you go to, like, any fraternity or sorority website, they will all have, like, a little tab on their website that says hazing. Don't do it, basically. Um, We we don't endorse hazing. But, you know, Pike also calls itself a dry fraternity in some documentation, which we know is not. Exactly. 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 So, like, oh, yeah, we're alcohol-free, especially for anyone 21. No, you're not. Or under 21. Like, that's not real. I'm sorry. That's not real. And you all know it's not real. So don't act like it's real, right? Uh, 
I'm reading this, like, Wikipedia entry about, like, fraternity, like, hazing deaths. And I'm remembering the one that your folks spoke of about being, like, dropped off in the woods and blah, 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 blah. And I never felt like I was really in danger. Mm-hmm. And there was specifically one where a guy was dropped off on a secluded road and told to hike back to campus. And he was found eight days later at the bottom of a cliff. Whoa, wow. That's awful. And in that eight days, no one, did anyone report him missing? I mean, this is a whole nother can of worms, but like. This is literally, I literally just like randomly, like, I have done no other research other than reading this. But you have to wonder, like, he wasn't found for eight days. Was anyone looking for him in those eight days? I would hope so. so. It was 1972. Mm. I'm just, like, randomly, like, going through A lawless time. This did not give me any hope for the future. The hope that I have, and this is, like, my eternal hope, is that Gen Z, like, takes no shit. And I do have some hope that we will see a heightened degree of scrutiny on these groups. The the thing that worries me, like we talked about when we were texting about it yesterday, is if these groups end up being like shrunk and marginalized, that that marginalization might come with a greater degree of extreme activities, not a lesser one. Like as they become like, I think the parallel to cults is not an extreme assertion to make. But, like, mm-hmm. if they're driven to, to obscurity rather than, like, ubiquity, will that, you know, cause more extreme behaviors, which often happens in those type of situations, right? But you say, like, Gen Z takes no shit. Weren't these kids Gen Z? They were. They were. Weren't these, like, everyone in these fraternities Gen Z? Yeah. I mean, I guess I also think that there's, like, that's, like, we started with, like, everybody wants to join. Everybody wants to belong, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's it's human nature to want to belong somewhere. And there's certainly, like, a genre of person that tends to seek that belongingness in these organizations, right? You don't see a lot of, like, people of color or queer people that are, like, in frats and sororities, right? Like, that's not a thing that happens very often. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like we keep saying, like, oh, we're getting more progressive. This won't happen. Like, I still think of hazing as, like, such an 80s, 90s Mm. thing. Like, who the fuck still does this now? I still think of fraternities as, like, this really disgusting fucking porkies bullshit. Mm -hmm. And yet here they still clearly are doing the exact same thing shit like the old boys club never dies yeah they're back on their bullshit forever i'm just gonna hope because that's who i am that at least the prominence shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and that the draw shrinks and shrinks and shrinks you know i I hope that's my hope and i don't have a particularly like strong evidentiary basis for that hope but that's why it's it's my hope nonetheless right so. You are the hopeful of us. I am. But on this sobering and deflating note, <laughs> what are we doing next time? 
for on the note of growing and hoping and changing and trying to do better good segue thank you um we're getting back into our segue groove so next week i am actually going to be redoing an old episode our first episode so I'm going to be retelling the Erica Baker story, not because there has been any a ton of new information that came out or anything like that, but because being our first episode, I genuinely feel like, I mean, I couldn't have been on my best. It was my first time doing yeah. things. Um, it was hard. I was anxious. I take a long time to warm up to anything new, especially when it's talking. Yes. And having recently done another lovely vacation in Devil's Lake, I was reflecting and I was like, I can do better and I want to do better. The Erica Baker story is something that means a lot to me. And so I want to redo that story now, having more experience and more of my own voice. And I want to do it better because it deserves better. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. It deserves better than, than baby is. <laughs> Oh, God, baby us. Baby nervous Shay and nervous laughter doing, like, I don't... An awful sound. Oh, my oh gosh. My God, awful because we're, like, sound. sitting on the porch of an Airbnb in Devil's Lake, Wisconsin, like, shuffling papers and drinking beers and, like, hoping for the best, basically. I was literally, like, reading off my phone onto, like, a shitty laptop mic and again like so incredibly anxious and I want to do it better and I I I know that I can it's our first episode and I know it's one of our most listened to which is also why I'm like I don't want this to be the impression people have of us of just stupid babies yeah because it's yeah (laughs) yeah because you know people have had negative response to it and I think that that's like maybe a little bit fair but also like it's our first episode episode, like you know we've we've gotten a lot better since then I'd like to think and yeah, I'm I'm ready to rehear about it in a much more clear and mature mindset as well. Exactly. And honestly, like I don't read our reviews because they give me too much anxiety. Mm. I just feel like I'm a better person now that can do a story better. Yeah. Look at that. Personal growth. I love it. I love it. Personal growth without shitty feedback. Yeah. I feel like you have gotten more in many ways more confident through this project. I don't, I don't feel that way. That's probably the therapy. Ah, that too. <laughs> I like to think that our time together is um, a form of therapy, although I'm glad that you're also doing real therapy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, friends, we'll be back with that story really soon. Uh, in the meantime, we would love to hear from you on the socials. Please leave us your positive ratings and reviews. Come and hang out with us at Midratched. Um, if you feel like sending us a case suggestion, we always take them. Um, and we're always like eager and interested in hearing about what you want to hear about. So please let us know. Always, always, yeah. always. Yep. So I'm tired. I'm so tired. Okay. I've been going since 10 a.m. Let's Yeah, stop. it's currently 11.30 and I've been up since 5.45. So let's go to yeah, bed. Yeah, let's go to bed. So uh, look, friends, uh, be nice. And eat cheese. And we love you. Love you very much. So thank you for being here. Get a good night's sleep, friends. Gosh, yes. Good night, everybody.
jam on this little like cephalopod. It's just enough, you know, like it's not too much. It's just enough. <laughs> if I could have an octopus as a ha- as like a pet, I totally fucking would. Oh, same. Same, same, same. That'll be my like stupid rich pet. Like when I have like insane money, I'll have a red panda and an octopus. 